Faculty of Horror holiday party. How are you? Yeah, come in, sit down. I'm just uh, here with my co-host, Andrea Stevasetti. And we were just kind of reminiscing about this time of the year. It's December and everyone's having Christmas parties and office parties and hopefully you're slacking off a bit at whatever you do. And we thought it'd be really good to talk about something timely and of the season. Now, since we've already talked about Black Christmas, you can go check that out in our first episode. We thought we should talk about family. Now, not our families, because those are horrific enough, but what is like a really iconic family in horror? The Faculty of Horror is celebrating our year anniversary. I believe it was one year ago now that we recorded our first episode on Black Christmas and Halloween. And I'm under the impression that it's our most contentious episode. It's definitely, if you look on Podomatic... It's the episode that has the most comments, and those are comments agreeing with us and also disagreeing with us. But today we are going to talk about the 1974 cult classic indie film Go Kaboom, The Texas Chainsaw Massacre. What happened was true. The most bizarre and brutal series of crimes in America. is real, just as close. Just as terrifying as being there. Even if one of them survives, what will be left? The Texas Chainsaw Massacre. After you stop screaming, you'll start talking about it. Now, the Texas Chainsaw Massacre 
is almost the ubiquitous horror film, I almost feel like. It, like Combined with Night of the Living Dead, it's one of those titles that's just dropped. It's a, it's a horror movie. It's definitely a horror movie. It's a classic horror movie. It's, it's kind of one of those DVDs you have to have in your horror library if you're a fan. It's just, it's one of those pieces. Yeah, and I think just like Night of the Living Dead, that goes to talk to descriptors in the title, obviously, Texas. So you've got that kind of hot, sticky, southern thing where blood is just going to like get entrenched in your pores and it's never going to come off and it's going to be really gross. And obviously the chainsaw, that's so iconic. And, you know, even if you've never seen the movie, you can get a visual image from the title. I mean, my God, when I was just coming up with notes for this podcast, I turned my notebook over and I have a leather face sticker on my notebook that I'd completely forgotten about, courtesy of ghoulish Gary Pullen, if anyone's looking. The film was actually banned in several countries, and I feel like the title implies a very gory, horrific horror film because you think of Leatherface and you think of a chainsaw digging into flesh, but in fact, the blood factor of this film is actually very low. And like Night of the Living Dead, if you haven't seen it, you kind of build it up to be this blood feast, which in many ways it's not. Another similarity it has with Night of the Living Dead is this is a film made by a first-time filmmaker on a very low budget looking to make a name for themselves, and it was kind of thrown together. And not to rip on Toby Hooper or George Romero, you know that Night of the Living Dead is my favorite movie of all time, but to me it has this flukiness to it. Is You watch it and... You can get a lot of themes out of it, and there's a lot of artistry in it, but I can't shake the feeling that a lot of it is accidental, a lot of it was circumstantial and was just kind of stumbled upon, and then the result is this beautiful masterpiece that's being talked about decades after its release and will continue to be talked about as long as horror films are talked about. I think what's interesting about that, because I do agree, there is this kind of freshness, this unpretentiousness to both of those films. And I think what really comes from those films is you lack that calculation that can be behind a lot of other films. So, you know, it's not as reliant on jump scares or things coming out. There is a sense of dread and bleakness. And well, you know, Hooper and Romero have kind of come forward and said, we never intended to make something that was this thematically important. It does go into the idea of the collective subconscious, that we're all dealing with things all the time and we are a product of the world around us. So eventually, in different ways, these ideas and these stories are going to filter through us and come out in different ways. So for some people, it comes out in a podcast. And for other people, it comes out, you know, making their first film or, you know, going out and getting drunk every night or, you know, whatever you choose to do, it's going to come out in some way. And because we all produce different things, they tend to interact with each other. So this is where you get something like that dialogue between audience and auteur. I don't think it's a bad thing that George Romero didn't necessarily intend to have all this social commentary and social allegory. My anecdote to this point is that George Romero famously maintains that he cast Dwayne Jones in the role of Ben simply because he gave the best audition and not because he was black. But Ben's blackness, as we've talked about in the podcast before, is so important to the story and the film and the point and the meaning. So... I've never been one to be very concerned with what the director meant by the film. It's what we take out of it that matters, and we can take a lot out of the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. So here we go. 
The film which you are about to see is an account of the tragedy which befell a group of five youths, in particular Sally Hardesty and her invalid brother Franklin. It is all the more tragic in that they were young, but had they lived very, very long lives, they could not have expected, nor would they have wished to see as much of the mad and macabre as they were to see that day. For them, an idyllic summer afternoon drive became a nightmare. The events of that day were to lead to the discovery of one of the most bizarre crimes in the annals of American history, the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. So for anyone who doesn't know, a lot of my research and writing and lecturing has been about found footage horror. And one of the things I kind of went back to when I was doing my master's, and it comes up time and again when you talk about, you know, mockumentaries or found footage, is the fact that Texas Chainsaw Massacre purports to be based on real events. So just to extrapolate on that intro, obviously you have Sally, who is our final girl. She and her friends stop to see their grandfather's grave because there are reports of grave robbing in this kind of little rural Texas area. And from there, they kind of stumble into the home and this kind of insane world that Leatherface and his family live in and they intrude upon their property and Leatherface kind of picks this group of young adults off one by one by one in you know different brutal ways until finally Sally is the only one left alive she's held captive kind of tortured mocked until she finally finds a moment to break free she makes a run for it Leatherface gives chase she eventually flags down a pickup truck and rides off to safety. But the interesting thing about this is Sally is screaming at the end. She is screaming, and her screams are almost laughter. It is one of the most disturbing noises I've ever heard come out of a human in my life. And in the rear view of Sally's gaze, you've got Leatherface kind of impotently, as we will talk about maybe later, swinging the chainsaw around up above his head, you know, as the sun is coming up. And not only has he lost the kill that he was hoping for, but he's still alive. And this was kind of one of the first monsters that you see in popular cinema who survives. And obviously that gives a big lineage to what would come after it. I totally agree. I think her hysterical giggling at the end of the film is terrifying. I, I think all horror fans think to themselves, what what must that be like to be getting away from that? Or There's always kind of a scene where the final girl's in recovery and surrounded by the cops and she just looks really tired and really just kind of glad to be okay. And here's Sally and she is a jabbering madwoman because she can't even handle what she's just seen, like in the space of a couple of hours, right? Like we watch, the movie is two hours long. We have to imagine the event itself just went on the duration of one night. All her friends are dead and she is now lost and on her own having survived that. I also think the performance by the actress is bulletproof and I've seen a bit of a documentary about her saying the working conditions for this film were absolutely a abysmal and she was saying that she was nearly driven mad with exhaustion and being tired of screaming tired of being covered in blood tired of running away from Leatherface on a twisted ankle so some of the madness was legit I recently rewatched Friday the 13th part one and 
one of the things that always kind of struck me as funny about that movie is how Alice, the final girl in that one, gets kind of pulled down into the lake by a young boy, Jason, and she wakes up in the hospital and she's calm and clean and, you know, there are nice white sheets and everyone's speaking in soft tones to her. And she's also speaking in very soft tones. And it feels like this very civilized epilogue. The boy, is he dead too? Who? The boy, Jason. Jason? In the lake, the, the one who attacked me, the one who pulled me underneath the water. Ma'am, we didn't find any boy. And then I hadn't seen Texas Chainsaw Massacre in years, actually. So that reminder of Sally, played by Marilyn Burns, getting away and just like drenched in blood. And, you know, another thing they talk about and all the makings of is the intense heat, as well as all the working conditions and long hours they had to put in. So you get that sense of everyone was like sweaty and, you know, the fake blood is sticking to them. And I feel like Marilyn Burns was just on a car away from Toby Hooper and his camera at that point. And so I need a couple of more shots. I need the, shot, the hysterical shot of her as she's being taken away from Leatherface. And they called me that night, and they said, Marilyn, something happened. We didn't get it. I said, you didn't get what? It didn't, we didn't get it. We got to reshoot this. So when I was crazy at the end of the movie, laughing hysterically, that was not acting. That was me having to go back and do this one more time. <laughs> totally. And not only were the working conditions horrible, not only were these people shooting in a poorly ventilated house full of rotting meat in the Texas summer sun, they also largely didn't see a penny of this bitch. You know, like they're making a film that they think might do okay. It blows up and does amazing. And, you know, there's a couple of... Um, theories speculating as to why they didn't get the money they deserved. They were basically fucked from the sound of it. It sounds like the distributing company promised them shares of a certain sort, but instead of actual shares, they got shares of shares of shares of shareholders' shares. And it kind of goes along those lines. Most of us had different percentages. So I thought it's going to be at least a payday. But according to Bryanston's reports, the Texans' 35% share of profits amounted to $5,734. So you start uh, looking up your little percentages of a percentage of, of a production company that has X percentage of the production companies. My temptation is to call it a, a deception, but maybe it was a misunderstanding. But essentially, what no one ever found out, why I certainly never knew, was that Vortex didn't own the film. So what we were paid in our percentages were a fraction of what we thought we were supposed to get. Vortex turned out to be one of, I think, three companies who had the financial interest in the film. So when I'm being given points, I think I'm being given points in a film, but I'm actually being given points in a company that owns points in the film. So to go back to the very beginnings of Texas Chainsaw Massacre, and not Texas Chainsaw Massacre at the beginning, the really bad prequel sequel to this franchise, as Toby Hooper stated, and I think it's pretty common knowledge, that the inspiration for this film was Ed Gein, the serial killer who is also the inspiration for Psycho. And as we've talked about in a previous episode, Silence of the Lambs killer, Jamie Gum. Now, 
what I think is really interesting about this story, and as Toby Hooper has described it, was he grew up with this story. He grew up with his aunts and uncles and parents and relatives talking about it as it was going on. So it was something very real, something very tangible, and something very scary and very other. So it's obviously something that as a young child stuck with him. And then the influences of, you know, growing up and forging your own way helped influence and shape this story. So getting back to our dialogue between the audience and director writer, there was that sense of unease brewing and people were becoming aware that we don't ever really know another person. This can always happen. Things like this probably are happening, and we don't fully know that much about it. That's very true. And one of the many themes in this family that we're going to talk about is this family depicts a very American horror. And it's a time in the U.S. where the hippie optimism is really breaking down. You've got Nixon shitting the bed and admitting to it. You've got Nixon sending kids overseas for the Vietnam War and having them come back mangled if they come back at all. You've got the breakdown of the nuclear family. Like, basically, Americans were grappling with everything that they knew to be true was breaking down. And here's Ed Gain, and it's just kind of like, what is happening right here on our native soil? So I think what's important to examine, especially at this point, as we're just getting off the ground with this discussion, are the notions that a society is founded on. And those are the ethics and conditions for work and labor and how that work and labor gets distributed. One of the many analyses of this film is very Marxist reading of it. And that's also kind of a condemnation of capitalism. So the fact that Leatherface and his family are kind of out of work slaughterhouse people, that goes to speak to technology was advancing at such a rate that slaughterhouses, you know, especially in that ilk, were becoming obsolete. They were inventing machines, making it much cleaner and slicker to do all of that stuff thereby relegating a whole subsect of the population and laborers who made that their trade and made them unemployed. That's right. And Marx referred to that as de-skilling. And he was very concerned with how industrialism dehumanized people. It, it segmented their task. Like, let's say your task is to, I don't know, make a notebook. Someone's in charge of putting the lines on the paper and somebody else makes the paper and somebody else binds the paper. And nobody's really in charge of making the whole book. Nobody has that satisfaction. Nobody has that skill under their belt. So we see these ex-slaughterhouse workers and the only skill that they've gained from their years in the slaughterhouse is the ability to completely distance themselves emotionally from their prey and heartlessly wrap someone on the head if it's feeding time. Hey man, did you go in that slaughter room or whatever they call it? The place where they shoot the cattle in the head with that big air gun thing. Oh, that, that, that gun's no good. I was in there once with my uncle. The old way. With a sledge. <laughs> See, that was better. They died better that way. Well, and then when earlier on in the film, before the group of kids really encounter Leatherface or his family, they stop at a gas station, which has no gas. But maybe if they wait around, some will come and they're offered barbecue. And we then later learn that Leatherface and his family are kind of digging up these graves and these people, killing other people, giving them meat. And then that gas station is barbecuing that flesh and that human meat and selling it to passersby, to tourists. So it goes into that theme of consumers becoming the consumed, which is also another great thing that George Romero really paralleled, especially through his initial trilogy of the dead. 
Another huge factor at this time was obviously the political unrest that was occurring in the 70s, coming out of two world wars that America had been a very prominent player in and really kind of swooped in, especially in World War II, to kind of quote unquote, save the day. That's a whole other podcast. I'm not even going to get into it. But certainly the lore and the kind of hero worship around that and in a lot of factors, they really did come in and help sway the war in the good guys' favor. And then coming out of that, there was that period of the 50s and into the 60s where there was that kind of baby boomer, drive-in, sody pop kind of optimism. There was a real hope and sense of wonderment at the world that people had come together, defeated evil, and we're now moving on with our lives. And, you know, the space race, obviously the Cold War was going on at this time, but there was a real sense of hope. But at the same time, you also had that underlying sense of the world could always end. So that was a very interesting time, especially analytically and culturally. But I would say the overall writing theme was a lot of optimism. Then you had one of the biggest crooks, save for Rob Ford and his brother Doug, coming into power, and that was Richard Nixon. Well, I'm not a crook. So you have Richard Nixon in the White House, conservative, coming to power, and basically fucks the country over big time, runs up huge amounts of debt, gets himself into this war that he had no idea how to get himself out of with Vietnam. And the cultural and economic climate of the United States at this time was only exacerbated by all these young men forced to go away, fight a war they really had nothing to do with, and come back, as Andrea said, in tatters, if at all. So there was a sense that a lot of stuff was being hidden from the public. And this is kind of what we get in the Watergate scandal. We have people that we vote into power through apparently democratic processes lying to us, lying to their people and thinking they can get away with it. And so the idea, and especially the scroll at the beginning of this film, is really important because when they talk about this story coming from the annals of American crime, it kind of gives the impression that it's something that's been covered up, hidden away, out of sight, out of mind. It was dealt with, and you know what, you guys don't need to worry about it. So just even the phrasing of it, consciously or subconsciously, really speaks to the kind of subversively transgressive piece of art. And I say that with no sarcasm, and that it is going to elevate and shed light on something that has been hidden from us, whether it's protecting us for, you know, whatever reasons they deem necessary, but that it is something that we deserve to know about, that there are these things going on, and we have to be aware of them. The American dream essentially has an ugly underbelly, which comes really strongly through this film. But the main message of this film is the analogy of humans to cattle. Is There's a long scene where you see the cattle awaiting slaughter. They kind of drive through it. We know that these people used to work in a slaughterhouse. I feel like the allegory of cattle is really strongly represented in the anti-Vietnam sense in the character of Franklin. Like Franklin is a paraplegic, like so many returned veterans, and he's such a burden on the group. We don't know how he got to be that way, but he's clearly emotionally scarred. He's got some issues. Apparently his sister twisted his arm and said that he'd have fun, and he's not. (laughs) Come on, Franklin! It's gonna be a fun trip! (laughs) 
So he's a huge burden to the group physically, socially, emotionally. His helplessness is really exaggerated. And he is just so annoying that if that movie came out today in this politically correct era, I was like, you can't depict disabled people like that. That guy is a piece of shit. I'll push him down a hill. I just had sensitivity training today at work. A, it did nothing to me. But, oh my God, I felt like we should have had to watch clips of this film to just try to, you know, what would you do in this situation? And apparently, according to the actress who played Sally, is the two of them didn't get along that great either. So toward the end, when they were just bickering, that was pretty legit. In the scene where Sally is pushing him through the woods, this sort of nagging back and forth and the kind of snapping at each other wasn't in the script at all. It's just that by that point, I don't think they could stand each other. Give me the flashlight! And I think what's interesting about this is we're getting into the notion that the film creates of the two families. So obviously you've got Leatherface and his family, as we've talked about, the kind of disenfranchised worker. And then you've got this other family of young, peace-loving, wheelchair-sitting-in people. Uh, you know, so the sense that young people, and as you do, as you become an adult, you kind of reform your family with through friends and colleagues, and you know, you kind of get to pick and choose a bit more. So you've got these two really idealistically different, deeply different families that kind of come to heads with each other. So you've got the youth movement represented through Sally Franklin and their friends, and you've got this kind of old capitalist cast-off guard of the backwoods Leatherface Hicks. And what we see is this trusting, open, you know, way of living or thinking really coming to an end through the brutal murders of all of these people. And even Sally, who survives and makes it out at the end, is mentally destroyed at the very least. That's right. And stumble upon their world they did is they're just passing through and they're not even on their way to a cabin in the woods. You know, they're kind of on their way back. I get the sense that they've done what they had to do. And so now they're touring through. They need gas. Yeah, that's kind of a bit of a setback. But what really pushes the story along is when they encounter the hitchhiker. What was interesting to me was that Franklin was most interested in the hitchhiker. Is when they're sitting in the back, Franklin kind of wants to ask him questions. And that was interesting to me because Franklin kind of seemed like the other of the group. And so here they encounter the hitchhiker, who is the ultimate other, you know, like when they're debating whether or not they want to pick him up. It's the same debate that we'd all have. It's, you know, what if that was you or me out there and he's out there without a ride and he's a human being and we're all human beings. Yeah, but he's weird looking and we don't know him. And we, you know, we might not be safe if we let him into our van. And I think they feel pretty confident picking them up because there's, what, five of them and one of him. But still, the hitchhiker is able to take control of this situation by being random and terrifying. You know, he starts off by saying some pretty fucked up things about the slaughterhouse, which they're kind of gaping with a morbid curiosity. But then he burns that picture of Franklin in a weird ritualistic thing. He cuts himself and then he cuts Franklin. And then... Don't they kind of mention that he marks the car as he gets out? On his way out, yeah. He, he smacks the side of the van, leaving a big bloody handprint that they encounter again when they're at the gas station and they kind of look at and contemplate, which I think was just more or less a device of foreboding. You know, it's one of the only splashes of blood we really see in, in the entire film. Hey, that, that guy smeared blood all over the van. Looks like he's trying to run something. What do you do? You write something on the van? 
But I thought it was really fascinating that he was able to dominate and terrorize them in the van, which is their turf, in which he was invited as a guest. And later on, when it comes to their entry into the house, they enter uninvited. And I think it's, you know, a really great pairing of the two ideas that run parallel throughout the entire film, really meeting at a nexus. They meet and the kind of whole film and the world of the film starts imploding from there. And it's a really interesting scene. It's a really weird scene. And it's a really well acted scene. And I think that's why it stands up. And I think that's why scenes like that have had so many imitators. And very few have ever come close to even really touching that. Because, again, Hooper, frankly, more of an amateur kind of background, had a real way of tackling that and getting at it where it was really real. There was a sense of urgency, there was a sense of foreboding, and there was a sense of chaos that was going on. And it felt very genuine and very honest. And the fact that it happens in the home, it was something that was kind of new to horror at the time. You know, 1972 saw the release of Last House on the Left, which was another really influential American, very American evil horror story that speaks to all the themes that we're bringing up about this one. It rests on 13 acres of earth over the very center of hell. Here's the first motion picture to offer to the daring a look into the final maddening space between life and death. The last house on the left. To avoid fainting, keep repeating. It's only a movie. Only a movie. Only a movie. Sights and sounds far beyond anything you've tested. The last house on the left. To avoid fainting, keep repeating. It's only a movie. Only a movie. Only a movie. Take as only much as you can. Only a movie. In Last House on the Left, there's unspeakable evil that goes on in the woods, but then it's brought into the domestic family setting, and a lot of the violence is dished out by these all-American parents who, they could really be your mom and dad, which is really unsettling. So when these teenagers stumble upon the house, I mean... Leatherface, we're going to get into more detail about Leatherface and his family shortly, but Leatherface is such a great character. What I love about him is he is so fragile. Insofar as he is powerful, and when Kirk stumbles in, he just hammers him in the head, and that is that. And he dispenses with these people left and right. There's also that great scene where he, he runs to the window and looks out the curtains, and he looks totally unhinged. And he's just like, where the fuck are all these kids coming from? And he, he kind of sits there and he frets for a second because he's pan- He's not used to this, and he feels really invaded. And I really got the sense, especially re-watching it for this episode, that that fretfulness, that concern came from that maybe he'd only ever done it to animals before, or that he was not used to this. But that's what he knew. That's what he knew, and that's what he knew to do if someone got away or if someone kind of entered into territory and it looked like someone who was not his family. 
And several of the reviews that we read of this film, several of the academic, literary, nerdy reviews that we are want to read, drew attention to the fact that Pam, who follows Kirk into the house to try and find him, almost makes it out. And she makes it almost as far as the porch, I'd say, before Leatherface grabs her and hauls her back in. And that's kind of the first time that we really get a glimpse of the horrors really throughout. Is you can get away from the house, but Leatherface knows that surrounding area, like the back of his hand and this wonderful American wasteland is really his playground and he can catch you anywhere in it. And I think that kind of speaks to the notion that our homes are never truly our homes. If we come from a place, if we identify as this, then we are safe within it. You know, and I think that's really what horror at this time was beginning to speak to, that there are all these underlining things that are just below the surface and that are simply waiting for us to find them. Another thing I'd like to call attention to as regards Leatherface's motives and his family's motives is I feel like the entire film is very asexual. And, you know, we talk about gender a whole lot, gender politics here and there. Not only do I feel like sex is totally absent from this film, I feel like the film almost mocks that in a certain respect. For example, when Kirk and Pam go off to the swimming hole, my background in horror film and in the slasher subgenre tells me that they are going off somewhere to have sex. And the fact that they don't is almost a bit jarring, and it made me feel perverted for expecting them to. It's like, my God, no, they're going for gas, for fuck's sakes. Be such a perv. Just because they're hot, just because Pam is wearing, like, a really sexy non-shirt and looks amazing in it. It looks like they're going to fool around, but they don't. And then later, when Sally is caught and they're terrorizing her at the dinner table, she says to them, I'll do anything you want. And they scoff at her like, oh, yeah, nice try. Like, we're interested in a pair of tits. We're going to eat them. We don't give a shit. I mean, this was kind of the beginning of the slasher subgenre. But if it had happened after, I'd say it was satire. I thought it was great. And it cracked me up. Like, she's much less a sex object to them as meat. She has no gendered power. I totally agree with that. And I think that's a really interesting point. And I had that same thought. Because, again, I hadn't seen this in a really long time. So when they went off to go do whatever I was like oh man they're gonna bone zone that shit and it's gonna be whatever it's gonna be and then yeah I had that exact same reaction of oh I feel like a bad person and what's interesting Andrea and I did not talk too much about our you know readings and analysis of this film before recording tonight but what I did mention is another kind of culturally interesting thing about Texas Chainsaw Massacre is it's one of the few horror films to warrant its own true Hollywood story. It's all on YouTube. I will post it to Facebook and Twitter so you guys can take a look at it for yourself. And it's kind of interesting. And one of the things that happened while I was watching the E-True Hollywood story, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, was our dear friend Heidi Honeycutt shows up in it. And I got all excited because she's a good friend of mine. And I thought that was super cool. And Heidi kind of pops up as like the horror expert. She does a great job. And she mentions that Texas Chainsaw Massacre really helped define the final girl trope. I did mention this to Andrea, and I kind of remember we had a bit of a like, oh, I guess, sort of, really? Hmm? And what's interesting is the final girl trope in this film doesn't so much pertain to her sexuality, her tomboyishness, her lack of phallus and then gaining a phallus and then dropping the phallus, all that kind of stuff we've already talked about in previous episodes. 
it has more to do with one of the things I find most interesting about the final girl is that she sees the fate of her friends and she lives with the knowledge that she could be next. I find that supremely interesting, a very psychological reading of a character and of a trope. And I think Heidi was right to identify that because there is this long section of the film where it's just Sally on her own with this family and she's being tormented and mocked and she's desperately trying to escape because she has seen her friends. Actually, that's true. And now that I think about it, all the characters except for Sally are killed, but it seems to be only the women who really experience that terror, that knowledge that they are being killed and they kind of have to live with it and anticipate it and expect it, which I thought was really interesting. I enjoy Heidi. She was terrific in it. And her analysis was pretty spot on. I mean, when Alex first brought it up to me, I was just kind of like, she knows a lot more about the final girl trope than I do. But my understanding of it was mostly predicated on the final girl being a good girl and adopting masculine tendencies for the most part, if not puritanical female tendencies. But another thing that critics bring up about the final girl is that often at the very end, she is saved by a male. So here in this film, we've got Sally running for her life and she actually encounters two cars on the highway. One, I actually think it's hilarious when she encounters a trucker who whips a wrench at Leatherface, smokes him in the head enough to knock him over and cause him to maim himself, cutting his own leg with his own chainsaw. But later she is rescued by a white male in a pickup truck. And and some of the articles I read made reference to this, like, oh, of course she's rescued by a white male because they run the world. And I was like, really? You know, when I picture a trucker in Texas... I'm picturing a white male. And, like you know, I'm one to read too much into things. But this particular stylistic choice, I think, was actually very literal and realistic. What happened to the final girl trope after that was just kind of consequential. But I feel like this was the purest incarnation of a woman running for her life and getting away. Yeah, it definitely had more to do with survival and understanding survival, life, death, all that kind of stuff. The gender politics really came later, again, as we talked about in our first episode, with stuff like Halloween. Insofar as I say that the film is sexless, and by that I mean devoid of gender politics, there are some gender politics inherent in the family, and this is Leatherface's family. And what I mean to say is there is a conspicuous absence of a matriarch. There is no mom in this family, which has a lot of implications. Like, on the one hand, it serves to kind of infantilize Leatherface and his brother. We've got Grandpa, who is still kind of in charge of this family, even though he is as impotent as possible. He can't speak. He can't even raise a hammer to hit Sally in the head toward the end. But they're really trying hard to make him. Like, come on, Grandpa, Like, because you're the boss. And this is the 70s, so a disrupted nuclear family in the 70s always spells trouble. Many horror films in the 70s can be traced back to the sins of the mother. Ed Gaines' mother was apparently a religious fanatic who hated women and contributed to his misogyny, which caused him to store a bunch of severed vulvas in a shoebox. Norman Bates, we've got Maniac. There's so many examples of this. So the fact that the mom is absent partially explains what's wrong with this family. And then we've got Leatherface, who's got this gender confusion thing going on with transvestism, 
who, when it comes down to the dinner table, dresses up like a woman as, as if to act as the matriarch. And I thought that was really interesting. I think it speaks to that family's theatricality. Not only do they, you know, skin people alive, kill them, eat them, sell the meat, and have this kind of whole little cottage industry going on, they still need to do things like have a family dinner. And what do you have at family dinner? You have like a father, you have a mother, you have siblings and you have children. So, you know, they still have the grandfather who's still semi-alive acting as the patriarch. And then they still need someone to be the matriarch. So obviously there is more to Leatherface than meets the eye, but he can be bossed around by this family. So they felt that they needed that to complete this world, this ideology that they had, because that was the norm. Now, if I could speculate, and I can because this is my podcast and I can do nope. whatever I want. No, you can't. Insofar as this movie pushes a lot of boundaries as to what's acceptable and what's disgusting and what's really fucked up, a woman being in that family, a female cannibal, a woman present at that dinner table when they're making people sausages might have been just a bit too disturbing. And it's something that we see in House of a Thousand Corpses by Rob Zombie. Now... I love that movie. And when people talk about Rob Zombie and they want to rip him to shreds, and so they should, he's turned out a lot of fucking stinkers. And I readily admit that. But I maintain that House of a Thousand Corpses was his best film. I think his creative strength is in fucked up visuals. And that was true in all the music videos he directed. I thought there was really weird visuals. There was really weird taxidermy. The cinematography was really interesting in that film. And the family was populated by absolutely psychotic and terrifying women, both the mom and baby. And I thought they were really interesting additions in this film, which I felt was largely an homage to Texas Chainsaw Massacre. One of the interesting things about Texas Chainsaw Massacre is the fact that it's derided and criticized for being an essentially a grindhouse film. And as we've mentioned already in this podcast, that's just not true. There is not a lot of blood. There is not a lot of gore. But it's so evocative that you kind of can't get away from that. So one of the things that really struck me this time while watching it was that the mise-en-scene, the way of shooting this film, was very contradictory to the ideas in certain regards. So, for instance, you have a world of chaos descending on these young, nubile, semi-innocent characters. They are entering a world of blood, gore, cannibalism, hedonism, God knows what else. There is something inherently wrong with this family, and they are now, for better or worse, a part of it. Hooper and his crew shot this film with an immense amount of stillness. There are some really beautiful shots in this film, and largely the camera remains static, and perhaps it's kind of, you know, the offshoot of watching contemporary horror films where everything is handheld and moved around, and it's chaotic, and it's frenetic, and it's contemporary but it's also really fucking distracting. It's a cop-out, largely. I find when a film doesn't have the budget to do the gore properly, what they do is a shaky handheld, and then it's like, ah, it was confusing, and I didn't really get to see it, and it's just a wimp-out. 
And I agree. And I think it makes for a lack of being able to create tension within a scene, a lack of a director being able to create a world within their film that creates tension, interest, or anything like that. So the fact that Hooper often pulls his camera away, we get a lot of long shots in this film, and then a lot of close-ups. So I think especially for a first-time director, it's a really confident film, and it's incredibly interesting to watch. And what struck me this time in watching it was not only how still the camera was, but how calm, cool, and collected it felt. So you have the camera being very confident and direct in its shooting, portraying some of the most horrific, insane acts that we as regular people would ever come across. So it gives this really interesting view into the mind of someone incredibly twisted and dark. So we get a very succinct, calm view of something that is inherently wrong and falling apart from the inside. That's right. It's almost an impassive view. It's almost a a perspective that has no emotional attachment to what's going on, which I feel harkens back to the family and their total lack of humanity you know the fact that they're able to commit these crimes so calmly and as if it's business as usual and it also kind of harkens back to the news report expose style intro is that we're just reporting the facts as they are you know this is how it is we don't feel any way about it this is the latest disclosure in a report from national civil defense headquarters in washington it has been established that persons who have recently died have been returning to life and committing acts of murder. And one of the theorists I came across quite a bit when I was doing my master's was a guy named Philip Oslander. And he has a quote that is, live experience of any kind is undesirable and actually distressing. Now he's referring to art, performance, He's been used in a lot of different ways, especially at the turn of the millennium and the rise of technology. And I think that's something really interesting to consider when you talk about horror movies based on real events. There is something that mainstream audiences don't want to know that this actually happened or they want it anesthetized and whitewashed to make it really fun and safe and okay. Hence something like, I don't know, fucking Pearl Harbor, the Michael Bay movie, not the actual event, which is very sad. So the fact that so many horror films are, to use Andrea's word, predicated on fake true events is something that really speaks to us. It enhances that level of believability. We go to the theaters, we sit in the dark, we sit in our living rooms and try to escape into this world of the mad and the macabre. But we need that extra push. And if you can push yourself that far to believe that this actually happened, that's a whole other level of believability and engagement that most films don't usually achieve. Now, interestingly, in the kind of social history of the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, a lot of people actually really believe that this is based on real events. Not just Ed Gein, But that Leatherface was a real person. In fact, Gunnar Hansen, who played Leatherface, has several anecdotes about going to conventions, doing signings, and people coming up to him and saying that, oh, my uncle did time with Leatherface at this penitentiary, and I know it was so real, and you did such a good job. And even the guy playing Leatherface cannot convince them that they are wrong and that he's really glad they enjoyed it, but it was not a true story. 
And that came up in our episode on Urban Legends because it's an example of a movie that it's not quite found footage, but it kind of plays with the found footage format in a way that was so incredibly convincing to audiences. Yeah, it really transcended between fictional and newsworthy. And the fact that this cult horror film, which for its time and its budget has done incredibly well, it's still a very small film. I think, you know, I'm sure a lot of our listenership has seen it or is interested in seeing it, but most of the public has not seen it and probably will never see it. So it's interesting that it has kind of permeated our social culture and our social fabric. And I think it's one of the few horror films that actually has. It's incredibly popular for a film you haven't seen. Now, the notoriety and the success of the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, it's a shame that it didn't get the original cast any paychecks or much of a career after the film, with the exception of Toby Hooper, who is quoted as saying, you know, he kind of wanted to get out of horror, but they kind of pulled him back in because this film was so ubiquitous. But it spawned a whole franchise of sequels, which we're going to talk about briefly. We didn't go through them all because we're just not that um, sadomasochistic. But the direct sequel, Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2, saw the same characters in a really slapstick and funny context. And this just did not resonate with audiences at all. It didn't accomplish the same stark realistic horror that the original film did you know, accidentally in my opinion but this was just a complete fail but it was texas chainsaw massacre 3 i saw that when i was younger and it blew my mind in this one scene of total randomness no i haven't seen it recently so i i don't remember anyone's names and this was just kind of in the foggy pot fueled haze of my teenage <laughs> years but basically there's a woman running and she's got leather face and someone else chasing her there's two guys chasing her and they're chasing her through a field and out of nowhere this plane comes in swoops down and clips the other character with its front propellers it just swoops down clips him and flies away and now it's just her and Leatherface still running and I remember watching that and being like what in the flying fuck who was driving that plane what is even happening in this film now Texas Chainsaw 3 didn't do very well either it didn't really contribute to cinema with the same gravity as the original did but that one scene made such an impression on me and uh let me know if you've seen that and what you think like if, if maybe i missed something maybe uh one of her friends was actually a pilot and was coming in to save her or something but it actually took me a long time to dig it up i was googling leather face plane and propeller kill and it was crazy well, and then you've got Texas Chainsaw Massacre 4, which is really only known for starring Renee Zellweger and Matthew McConaughey. It's kind of just like a retread of the beginning. Matthew McConaughey and Renee Zellweger saw really high-profile careers after making that film, but prior to the release of it. And from what I understand, they didn't want that movie to come out because that was just kind of a dark shadow in their past. Now, Matthew McConaughey apparently really fought for the role that he had in the film because he gets to play a total raving lunatic and apparently he really enjoys that. It's something we saw again in Killer Joe, which came out a couple of years ago and I checked out in the theater. And he's great in the role and he really seems to relish the psycho. If you insult me again, I will cut your face off and wear it over my own. Do you understand? Do you want me to wear your face? 
And then along comes this remake. And again, it's a remake that the producers going into it, they knew that they had their work cut out for them. They knew that Texas Chainsaw Massacre had diehard horror fans who were going to come out and see this movie. And they probably hate it already. They probably hate it just at the mere mention of the word remake, you know, and I hate to count myself in that boat, but there have been too many stinkers lately to think anything otherwise. But lo and behold, the remake, I thought, was excellent. What did you think? I thought I really liked the remake, but it really bored me this time. But I do think it's interesting because that 2003 remake really kicked off the whole movement of the remake. It was made by Michael Bay's company, Platinum Dunes, who kind of became synonymous with doing horror remakes and shitty teen films. But that really kicked it off. And I remember watching it initially and being impressed with it. And perhaps it was rewatching it for this, where I watched the original Texas Chainsaw Massacre, then kind of went to the remake and was like, oh, gosh, no, this is dull and lifeless in comparison to the 74 original. I didn't find it dull and lifeless at all. I found it really, it lacked all of the subtext that we're talking about here. I feel like if we did an episode on that movie, it it would be absolutely empty. It's very much just a slasher film. It's just kind of an unfortunate group of teenagers who uh, are at the wrong place and the wrong time. There's a couple of artistic merits to the film. I thought, you know, the hitchhiker at the beginning was female and it was, the scene was kind of gendered and gross, but there was a really interesting shot through the hole she makes in the back of her head which I thought was really cool and surprising. Yeah, the thing I I thought that was interesting about them picking up a female distraught hitchhiker who eventually commits suicide, and you get this kind of pullback shot through the hole she makes in her head, as Andrea just mentioned. She kind of felt like the spiritual successor to Sally Hardesty, this broken, destroyed woman who had barely escaped and was not equipped for life after escaping. (laughs) He's a bad man. He's a really bad man. Now, Jessica Biel, I was so critical to begin with. What was that show she was on? She was on a drama. Seventh Heaven. She was on Seventh Heaven, and I was like, ah, shit, here we go with the titsy blonde who's going to be in a horror movie. But my God, I thought she killed it. Her hysteria was on par with old Sally. I thought she was great. I thought everyone in this film was great. I thought the terror was palpable, and I felt like it delivered on some of the unfulfilled fantasies of the original. You know, we saw someone impaled up on a hook, but we didn't really see it. We didn't really see them squirm and twitch on it and beg to be killed, but we got to see that in the remake, which I found oddly satisfying and didn't belittle the original at all. I think the remake really paid tribute to the unearned, horrific gore of the original. So whereas everyone thought the original was going to be super gory and super bloody, and it wasn't, the remake did make it that gory and that bloody. So it was kind of interesting to see the way prosthetics and CGI had come along so that they could do all of that stuff. Frankly, for me, it's not my area of interest in these films, so it kind of slowed it down. But that is an interesting comparison to see that the cultural and social history of the original film kind of bled its way into the remake. 
Now, the follow-up film to that is supposed to be a prequel to why Leatherface is what he is and what happened to him, like we give a shit. If you've been listening to any episodes of this podcast before this one, you know that I am staunchly against the over-explaining of an evil character, and that's exactly what that film was. Yeah, it's like putting all the horror villains on a Dr. Phil episode And from our twisted family of me and Andrea who sit around and drink booze and talk about horror movies to your family, which I'm sure is very functional and very happy because you're listening to us. We just want to say happy holidays. Say happy holidays. Happy holidays. Say it happy. No. Somebody wished me a blessed holidays today and I'm still really creeped out by that. (laughs) If you could find a happy way, if you can find, I don't know, happy Krampus, happy hope Krampus doesn't get you, hope Festivus for the rest of us. You know what? I'll take it. Anyway, whatever you celebrate, whatever you choose to celebrate, it's kind of that time of year where you can't escape spending time with people you love or pretend to love or have to love. And I'm very thankful I get to spend a little bit of this time of year with Andrea. And yes, I'm very thankful that all of you guys are listening, as is Andrea. Right, Andrea? I'm grateful. Thank you so much. We've been doing this for a year. We would not be doing this still without you guys and listening and caring as much as you do. And we love you. We love each and every one of you. We do have a couple thanks. We're going to get through super quick. We really want to thank Modern Superior. So that is Dan, Greg, and Casey. Those guys are awesome. They have two podcasts, See You Next Wednesday and Time Bandits, which Andrea and I have both been guests on, and they added us to their network, knowing very little about us, and we very much appreciate that, and that was a big vote of confidence right at the beginning of us doing this that really helped and really helped spur us on. We'd also like to thank Rue Morgue Magazine, for whom Alex and I have both written. Rue Morgue did a interview with us when we first started out that appeared on the Rue Morgue blog. They gave us a copy of the top 200 films you need to see, which we gave away. What was that for our 100th episode, 100th listener? 100... No, 200 likes. 200 likes. We had 200 <laughs> likes on Facebook, and we were so excited that we asked Rue Morgue for a prize, and they happily obliged. We were also guests on an episode of the Rumorg podcast. Two episodes, in fact. The interview was so huge, it spawned two episodes. And then there's also the episode from the Festival of Fear where we talked about misadventures in podcasting. In addition, we had the privilege of hosting Stuart Feedback Andrews on our Buffy episode. And if you haven't checked that out, you must. It's probably uh, that episode... If it didn't kill us, I'd like to think it made us stronger. Exactly. That's exactly what it was. It was growing pains. It elevated our profile a bit. And for that, we are eternally grateful to Rue Morgue. Yeah, I actually have a couple babies that I need to give to Rue Morgue. So um, I'll, be, I'll be seeing them very soon. We also want to give a quick shout out to everyone who contributed to episode four, which is Do You Like Scary Movies? We threw our net into our social ether and asked some of our friends and colleagues to contribute their favorite scary movies. And so we had Paul Korup, Andrea's co-curator at the Black Museum, a good friend to both of us, contributed. And he's awesome. And he does his website, Connexploitation. You should absolutely check that out. Dave Alexander, another friend of the podcast, who also happens to be editor-in-chief of Room Morgue. Yeah, 
We have some friends. Heidi Honeycutt, friend to both me and Andrea, mentor to me. I love that woman so much. The guys at Rewatchability, JM, Rob, and Blaine, they contributed as well. I've been a guest several times on that podcast. They are awesome. They produce an episode every Thursday. Subscribe, listen. They are great. Also, fuck, we can't thank Stuart enough. So yeah, Stuart again, and also Lance. Last chance, Lamp. Now, in addition to these people who contributed directly to the Faculty of Horror podcast, we want to give a shout out to a couple of other podcasts who we admire and respect as diving into the podcast world. We've become aware of other podcasts, what they do, how much work goes into what they do. You know, this is an unpaid position. This is something we're doing in our spare time. The editing is tremendously time consuming. We put a lot of work and effort into this. So we want to give shout outs to Six Foot Plus, who puts out a great episode episode every Friday. Tons of awesome horribilly and psychobilly music, as well as Dr. Gangrene, Monster Matt Patterson, Strange Jason, we love you. Thank you so much for trading station tags with us. Also, Time Bandit, see you next Wednesday, the Modern Superior guys again. And the other horror podcasts that we've plugged in recent years is a Hellraiser podcast, the Projection Booth podcast, which is all cinema and not just horror cinema, but really well-researched, full of awesome interviews. I was listening to the Cube episode today, and it's fantastic. So big shout-outs to you guys. Keep doing what you're doing. We love you. And we still have our contest going on. So that contest, just to remind you, is we have a DVD prize pack. I will actually get those and post the photo on Facebook so you can actually see it, but they're really cool and it costs you nothing to enter. All you have to do is send us feedback. Did you like something? Did you hate something? Do you have questions for us? Do you have comments for us? It all counts. You can reach out to us on Twitter at Faculty of Horror. You can get us on Facebook faculty of horror on there can email us the faculty of horror at gmail.com and we will take kind of everything from there and we will let you know so entries are open obviously they've been open for a little while now and until january 1st just send us something my god a tweet is like 140 characters you can do it i believe in you And one final thing, more of an announcement really, is the Faculty of Horror has just joined Stitcher, which as far as I understand is a software program that you can join and have all your podcasts delivered to you in a much more user-friendly way than, say, iTunes. God knows I hate iTunes. If you follow me on Twitter, you've seen me rant. I mean, if you use iTunes, you can always review us on iTunes and that'd be pretty awesome. But in addition to all the social media platforms, you can find us on Stitcher and subscribe to us there. You can find us on Podomatic, which is our host site. You can subscribe to us there. I'm also active on Tumblr. If you want to find me on there, it's ladyhellbat.tumblr.com. So thank you so much for joining us for our Texas Chainsaw Massacre episode. I hope we didn't ruin your appetite for your holiday dinner. Because office hours are closed.
Fake.